Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tiny DevOps, where we talk about solving big problems with small teams. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall. And today, I have with me Lynn Timms. Uh, Lynn, thanks for coming on the show. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, I met Lynn on a Slack group where we both talk about some of our business challenges. And I discovered that Lynn works with uh, company, manufacturing companies with some of their software problems. And I, I was really curious to get to pick her brain a little bit and learn about some of her insights on this. So, so that's why I brought you on today, Lynn. Um, but before we start talking about that, would you give our audience a little introduction, tell them about who you are, and, and describe better than I did what you do? Sure. So I own a company called Excel Software Services, and I've been working in software for manufacturers since I was about 20, well, about 20 years old. Um, so I've always worked around manufacturers. I started my own business in 20 or 2001, um, and I've expanded our offerings some when we used to do only manufacturing plant software, and now we do a lot of integrations. We'll do some websites when we have to, but our specialty is really solving those business problems, um, getting their different systems, communicating, especially with their e-commerce, and um, a lot of automations and just workflow solutions. Nice. And how big is your company? Um, there's nine of us. Okay. And what's the breakdown? Are, are you how many of you do like engineering work, software development work, sales, marketing, things like that? So we have one full-time support um, rep who his entire career has been spent in manufacturing and distributing as well. So he can you know support from our customers' perspective. And then we have four developers and a business manager slash salesperson because we really don't do a lot of sales. We're mostly referral driven. And then um, a couple of, we have an IT person and then a front end developer that are both part-time. Really good. Sounds like a diverse group. Um, since many of the people listening, I'm sure, are not familiar with manufacturing and distribution and so on, could you maybe paint a little bit of a picture like that? Like maybe what's a typical customer of yours look like and what do they do? Okay. Um, gosh, no typical. Um, I've got anything <laughs> from a designer boot company, like cowboy boots, okay. to cell phone accessories, um, racing motorcycles, an Italian racing motorcycle company. Um, let's see, business forms, printing industry, um, health supplements. I mean, you name it. Okay. That's a lot of stuff. That's, that's interesting. So I, I imagine that, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to make a, a, a wrong guess here, but that's why you're here to help that's help right. me learn how this works. Uh, so I imagine sure. that they're involved in the, the physical manufacturing of, say, boots. They're they're sewing the leather together or whatever, mm -hmm. and they have software that helps with that. And, and you help at that stage? I don't so much help with the um, assembly line or the manufacturing process. Um, there are times when we might pull technology into that process, like to measure things, but mostly my expertise is going to be in the um, fulfillment 
um, logistics for delivery and working with their buyers. So once the product is is complete, the boots are com are completed and put in a box. Mm -hmm. That's sort of where your expertise comes in with helping to to do inventory management and shipping. Is that right? Or or mm -hmm. yes. Okay. Yeah, there might be a little bit of crossover there if they're focused heavily on just-in-time mm -hmm. um, inventory, then um, we might dig deeper into their processes just to understand, you know, at what levels we need to start, um, you know, triggering new orders and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you, do you help on the supply side, like with the raw materials that come in and, and, and that sort of stuff too, or, or, or just on the other all. end? Okay. Yeah, not at all. So I'm curious, what kind of problem does a client come to you that you help them to solve? Mostly it's going to be one of two areas. Either they've got an in-house system, their ERP, whatever it is, and then they have some other platform, whether it's Salesforce, their e-commerce site, um, another CRM, or really any other third-party software. and they're struggling with having to duplicate data entry or one of the systems gets data wrong and they don't have any checks and balances. So that's one big area. The other one is just in um, processes that don't work well. For example, um, spending too much time manually processing payments for orders if their model is, um, you know, if their model requires lead time they can't actually charge a customer's credit card when they place the order because of the limitations of the merchant account. So automating that process so that they don't have to um, manually post you know, payments three to four hours a day. Um, so those are gonna be, that's just one example, but the automations can you know, be anywhere. It's just really anytime you have a broken, a broken process, they'll, reach out and say, hey, can you help us figure this out? And, and then, uh, so so you do this with some custom software or do you have like a sort of off the shelf, maybe a SaaS or something? How, what 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 do you do then to, to solve these problems? So we actually do both. Um, we do completely from the grounds custom software for some people. Um, if their needs just don't fit anything we have. We also have a few um, connectors that are built around specific ERP systems and that we can easily customize to match pretty much any e-commerce platform or CRM. And then we do have a couple of SaaS products that are just out of the box that um, really fill a specific need. We have a customer portal where if you do most of your sales to wholesalers or resellers, and you want a very B2B experience, um, we have a customer portal that sort of takes e-commerce to a B2B level where it's really meeting the needs of a wholesale buyer instead of, you know, the bells and whistles of an e-commerce shop. Well, I'm curious, how, how did you get into this um, line of business? You, you, you said that you've been doing stuff like this since you were 20. What, what got you interested in this and, and how did this business grow out of that interest? So that's my favorite story. Um, oh, my father, my father, who founded the company in 1979, he started working in a business forms manufacturing plant um, in his early 20s, sweeping shop floors. And 
um, rose up from there to being running a printing press. And then through the years, he rose all the way to be the VP of costing and estimating for uh, one of the bigger manufacturing plants in the country. And so he was tasked with the job of creating a computerized estimating system. And he hired several developers and he could, they could never get it um, because they didn't understand the complexity of manufacturing and costing and estimating, you know, all the different pieces that went in. So he eventually just decided this would work better if I just did it myself. So he taught himself how to code so that he could write their application. Um, after that had been, you know, that was on a huge mainframe way back when. Um, and after that was successful for them, he wanted to sell it to other manufacturing companies and their parent company was like, no, we don't want to, we don't want to sell this. We want to, you know, keep it internal for ourselves. So he sold his stock options, quit his job and took a little bit of different direction. He ended up writing it on a Superbrain computer which is like a preemptor to the PC, just sits on a desk with two floppy drives and wrote, rewrote it from scratch using a different language without the big mainframe. And that's where it was born. So right out of school, I wanted to work with him and I, it's the only job I ever had until I bought him out with my brother and sister in 20, 2001. Believe it or not, my dad, my dad still actually works some. Several hours a week, he pops in and he's always got some little project he wants to work on on the side. And he's always helping us with some of the things on the manufacturing end. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm, uh, that's a great story. I, I understand why it's your favorite. That's a good story. Uh, so um, <clears throat> I think we talked about this the other day when we were talking, but um, I was curious, do, do you install is the software that you develop for your customers is it cloud hosted or is it hosted maybe in their manufacturing plant or some combination or yeah combination so our software line that we have for printing companies that is um, housed in-house it's um, built with microsoft um, sql server on the newer versions we actually still have some that are still using old-fashioned db um, DBase 4 files, um, you know, it's an industry that doesn't move very fast. They're happy with what they've got until it stops working. They're not going to change. And then most of our new development is web-based. Our SaaS products are all web-based. So if someone comes to us something wanting, wanting something custom, if it makes sense for it to be local, um, then we'll do it with bb.net. And if it doesn't, then we'll do it with one of a few um, PHP-based frameworks is what we use mostly in the web. Now, this this estimation software that your father wrote, is that still being used or, or is, mm -hmm. has the kind of evolved beyond that? It's still being used. It's still being used. We it, So when he wrote it, there obviously was no Windows um, back then, uh, but we turned it into a Windows software. And it's really, it's for the companies that use it, that pretty much just runs their entire manufacturing plant. I wonder if you might be willing to talk about some of the maybe challenges uh, that you've experienced, um, whether they're, they're technical, yeah, probably technical challenges, but it could be anything. Um, 
you know, what, what are some of the, something interesting that, that you've had to deal with in the, maybe the last couple of years or so? We've got a couple of clients actually that have very unique challenges with um, processing payments that no out-of-the-box plug-in would cover for them. Either their average payment is well above the maximum for a um, e-check or something like that, or they just have a very unique um, workflow for when they can charge payments. So we built a automated payment system that was specifically for one client, um, but we've sort of been growing that and adapting it to other needs. And that's probably one of the things we do best is utilize something that one client needed and be able to just take pieces of that or pull different solutions together to meet another person's needs. Um, the most challenging thing I think we've done was, I don't know how well-versed you are in the e-commerce realm, but Magino, um, so when Magino decided to make end of life, Magino One End of Life in June 2020, and their upgrade to Magino Two, which is their new version, is not an upgrade. It's a totally different platform. So you have Magino One, you want Magino Two, you get a, you basically are starting from scratch. So that um, that process, which started sometime in 2018, towards the end of 2019, was just such a challenge that we actually realized we can't, as a small company, we cannot keep up with the Magento world. So we let go of, we try to let go of all of our Magento customers. Some of them are holding on for dear life and we still help them. We still serve them as we can. But um, so that was our big challenge was just deciding that a platform was not feasible for us to continue with and cutting ties and then finding, you know, new things to do to replace that, which had been, it had become about 35% of our work at that point. And so I would say that's probably the biggest challenge when you're mostly writing around other software is, um, you know, when you either outgrow that software or that software outgrows you, or it just turns into, you know, too big of a, too, too much trouble for the money that you're bringing in on it. And then you have to, you have to pivot again. And we've done a lot of that in 20 years. Yeah, I can imagine, especially when you're in a tech, uh, the tech industry, very few tech companies are doing the same thing today they were 20 years ago, right? It's, it's, it's almost impossible. Exactly. So one thing that, uh, w one of the reasons I was uh, interested in picking your brain a little bit is because, uh, you know, I, I work with DevOps and DevOps, um, sort of the, this, one of the most popular books about DevOps is called The Phoenix Project, which is based loosely on a previous book called The Goal. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the book, but it, it's about the manufacturing process and slack in the manufacturing process as a way to, to, to identify bottlenecks and, and stuff like that, which I realize isn't exactly the area you work in, but it, it, it overlaps with what you work in. So I, I was really curious to talk to somebody who's actually worked with manufacturing companies uh, and not just the theoretical idea of how computer software is similar to manufacturing. And, and you, you, do, you do both. You work in both software and with manufacturing companies. 
what parallels do you see um, from, from where you work between the work you do, the technical work you do, and the manufacturing work your clients do? What, what lessons can we learn from each other? So that's really fascinating. Um, I think that to put in one word, um, agility. Um, we do all of our dev, um, we operate agile methodology um, as much as we can and it's a small company. We've you know had to pick and choose the different pieces of different frameworks that we use. We try to do Scrum. Um, but there's a lot of similarities to being agile in development and that continuous improvement or continual improvement with um, Lean Six Sigma and whether you adopt that fully and whether you have, you know, all of the roles in your manufacturing business, which most of my clients do not, they know what it is and they may, if they have a big enough problem, bring in an expert, but mostly they are not manufacturing to the level that, um, you know, they need to get to the 0.34 or 0.034 defects because, mm -hmm. you know, they're not making oxygen as, right. One of my other mentors likes to say is we're not making oxygen here. Um, but I think that the process is very much the same. You can, even if you don't have the Six Sigma experts on board, if you look at your manufacturing processes or your software processes from the agile framework or methodology perspective, then you can always find one next thing that you can work on, improve, and then monitor for whatever your time frame is. Um, typical in agile development, it's going to be two week to one month cycles. Um, so that I think would be similar. And I think that's something that I sometimes bring to our clients when they come to us with a problem is I'll try to I'll try to box it into that same framework. Okay, what's one problem? Let's address that. Let's you know fix this one situation you have and then once we can say this sprint is what we, what we call them this sprint's done and we've delivered this now what's the next thing we can help for you you might you might remember one of i think the things that got us started talking in our slack channel was a post i had made about that ongoing type of consulting where there's not one there's not one outcome or one result that they're looking for. You know, there's maybe a hundred of them, but if there's a hundred of them, we're not getting all of them this year. But if we hit the, you know, the thing that's the most trouble for them today, and we can knock that out in a month, then they're super happy and they're ready to move on to the next thing. Do you work with, uh, do you call them sprints with your clients too? I mean, do you talk about let's, mm -hmm. what's the, what are the goals we can accomplish in, in two weeks or something like that? Or Yeah, we don't usually, we actually, we do use, if we're developing anything for our clients, we do use Sprint and we do use two weeks with them. Um, you know, the, when talking to them about their, their problems and how we can fix a problem, it's not necessarily going to be what can we fix in two weeks. Um, what we'll maybe talk about it in the terms of what is your biggest pain point right now? Um, right now I have an email that um, 
I keep having snooze until tomorrow morning because I just don't want to lose track of it. But where a client sent their next five objectives, maybe two of those I'll be able to fully handle for them. But one of them is build a new Shopify shop and we're going to want your input. I don't do Shopify. Um, I'm not going to do any of the development, but they're going to want me to, you know, help with pieces of making sure that they do it in an effective way. So if I was to take that top thing, it might be, you know, once we figure it out, it might be like a three sprint job. And that's how I'll communicate it to them is, um, you know, three sprints, three sprints, six weeks. And our basing right, right now is our pricing is based right now kind of on the sprint. Um, we try to do value priced, but it also is when we're doing continual work, it's a lot just based on how many sprints is this going to take us. And um, so I'm sort of trying to balance on that beam right now, trying to figure out the the happy medium between being truly agile and the make decisions and change things as we go with value pricing, the end result, uh, because with agile, you don't really box your customer into even an objective. Um, you know, you, they get to change their mind along the way. So it's really hard to marry those two parts of the different ideologies, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I see. Uh, by the way, for, for anybody listening who's not familiar with the term, value pricing is something Lynn and I are both very familiar with. Uh, but it's it's basically the idea that you, uh, when you're doing a consulting engagement with a client or any kind of engagement, I suppose, uh, you you de try to determine the value for the client and you base your price on that rather than based on how many hours or days or, or whatever. It's So it's a different way to come to a fixed price, just for clear clarity. I'll put a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to read more on that topic. Um, but, but back to what I was going to say, I, I think there's a, a strong correlation between this idea of value-based pricing and, and, and software agility um, in, in the sense that both of them, when they're done correctly, are focused on the outcome the customer wants rather mm -hmm. than on the inputs that we create or, or even the outputs that we create. You know, a, a traditional waterfall software development approach is concerned with how many developer hours or, or whatever. Uh, does it take, which I, I think is completely backwards from the, the, the approach you're talking about. And I love that you're talking about this because I completely agree that, you know, what are the five things that you need the most uh, is a much more valuable question to ask the client than um, how many hours do you think it's going to take for us to do this, whatever thing it is. So um, I, I, I'm excited to hear you say that. Uh, it's good to hear that. And, you know, and, and actually, I want to ask you about this. Um, I, I hear a lot of people talk about how agile software development is great in theory, but it doesn't work when you actually talk to clients because clients never want to hear, uh, uh, they never want to give you a prioritized list. They want to know what are we going to have done in six months, but it sounds like you've succeeded in, in turning the tables somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, do you ever get pushback from your customers that, that they want six month commitment or something like that? How do you deal with that? Um, pushback from customers, no. Okay. Push back from prospects that never become customers. Yes. <laughs> Very good distinction. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually have one client right now, and I hope they never listen to this because they'll know I'm talking to them. 
that they wanted a mobile app to replace a web app or to work in conjunction with the web app that we built them before we were agile. And um, I mean, we're probably going on 18 months since we had the conversation and they're still, they're still wanted, but they're still just not happy with pulling the trigger on doing it agile. Um, so they're pretty, they're pretty dug in. Um, they haven't gone to find someone else to do it yet because I just don't think, I don't think they feel like that's even feasible. They know we're the right people to do it, but some people are just very, very opposed. Now, some people can listen to a reference or call a reference that can say, um, you know, how it benefited them to do it that way. And I think that's helpful, but to be honest, there's a lot of trust. You have to have um, a very high level of trust level to go into a project with a software company not knowing what your final cost is going to be. Um, there is a way around that. You can do agile and do value pricing if you're really good at it. I don't know that I would say I'm really good at that, but um, we have done we have done value price projects where we actually quoted a price and we just treated it agilely. And we've had some that have been successful and a couple that have not been successful. But um, but to do the real truly agile where you start with the roadmap and you work with someone on the client's team who is the product owner to build it out as you go. There's a lot of trust there because there's too many unknowns and they're scared. We're finishing one right now that was really anxious about that before they bought in. And we've come in so far, we're almost under budget. We might actually finish under budget or not under budget, but under roadmap. So for them, because they were able to not pay us to do some things that they realized weren't that important. Um, they ended up saving money. So mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of give and take, and I think it is a hard sell. I think it's going to be easier to sell to really large companies. We don't work with really, you know, really, really large companies. But when you've got a whole team of people that are going to be working with the development shop on it, then I think that you would probably have a little bit more, um, you know, because they're going to be more technical anyway when you're dealing with the IT part of a bigger company. I don't believe it's true that it's good in theory and not so good realistically to work with clients for. I just think it's it's a harder sell. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're doing it with existing clients that already trust you, it's a lot easier. Right. So you, you mentioned that you have a client, the mobile app client, that you started with before you started doing Agile. Uh, what made you change to Agile? What, what what convinced you that it was a good idea and, and how did that work? That's a very good question. Um, I have to say probably the biggest thing is I've got two kids who are engineers and they both work at companies that utilize Agile methodology. So probably the biggest thing is just the talk around the Thanksgiving table. It's pretty mm -hmm. pathetic that that's what we talk about around 
the dinner table. But I, I um, wish we would talk about that just, at my Thanksgiving table. <laughs> well, we're actually not allowed. We um, the deaf side of the family gets in trouble when we get too deep yeah. into that. But um, no, just you know, being able to leverage their experience, and we have been struggling with finishing projects on time and within budget. And when you're fixed pricing and you're not in budget or on time, it hurts you the most. So I had been looking for ways to be more efficient, but that wasn't really helping. And there's just aspects of the agile framework or the scrum framework is what we adopted mostly that it's not that we're necessarily pricing different. Um, it's just that empowering the dev team, um, you know, making sure just all the little pieces of what makes Agile and Scrum so great, just focusing on those little things has really made all the difference in the world to us. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, well, it does to me. I, I think it's good to hear a, a success story because, uh, I don't know, at least on social media, there's so much negative talk about how Agile, like, like I said earlier, Agile is great in theory, but it, it doesn't work in, in these situations or it doesn't work when you talk with clients or it doesn't work when your CEO doesn't agree. So it's, it's great to hear mm -hmm. of a company that's doing it successfully. Yeah, and I think there has to be a lot of buy-in. Um, so that might be why you've got devs on social media, you know, saying, um, you know, it can be really hard to convince your salesperson to try to sell a client on a different project management perspective. Um, right. But any client that I've taken through a project using the Agile methodology, even if they paid a flat fee up front, even if we didn't charge them by the sprint, um, but just the ability to have input along the way and knowing like some of the biggest things that we found are Number one, putting more emphasis on the user stories and the story mapping so that the developers actually know what they're building and why and for who. Um, it's easy to talk about user stories. You know, as a mother, uh, as a soccer mom, I want to search for the right soccer shoes for my child so that they can become a soccer star. You know, you see all of that, that really the, the value in a developer knowing the whole story behind what they're working on that brought a lot to us and then just the team effort instead of all the developers working on their own thing and being accountable to each other that was probably a six month to nine month learning curve but once we got that that you know being a being such a small company like both of my kids that are um, engineers they their companies have you know, like dozens, if not way more teams of nine or more people each. But even a, with a small company like ours, just having that accountability to each other. So that was another thing. And then the last thing I would say is the, what did we finish the sprint and showing it to the client? It just really keeps you, you know, once we got to that mark where we could do that and started you know, how can we do it better? How can we finish more? And now our goal is to not only have something finished, but have it finished, installed, and signed off on 
and build before the end of the sprint. Um, it just makes us like laser focused on getting things done, which is super helpful in a smaller company. I'm curious if, if you don't mind talking about this aspect. Uh, you talk about you, you said you sort of bill per sprint and you sort of do value pricing. Can you paint that picture a little bit more clearly? Uh, I don't want numbers, but just Probably how do you figure not. that out? <laughs> Probably not. So, um, I, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to learn to do value pricing better. Mm -hmm. um, to me, right now, I don't have a lot of experience with pulling the value out of prospects. It's e actually easier with prospects than it is with existing clients, just because the relationship dynamics are already there. They're going to be really weirded out if I start talking to them differently than I always have. But even with prospects, um, yeah, I, I, I'm just not comfortable with the value pricing. Like I know something's very, very valuable because you can sense it by the way they're talking about it. But getting to the point where I can put a number on it, that's, um, that's a struggle for me. So I've kind of, and this is not advice for anyone else to follow, but what I've kind of done is just, you know, somewhere in between, it's going to take us. So the way we do our scheduling for sprints is we have four blocks and we've got it and we like we can't have anything that won't fit in four blocks. And if we're doing a bigger project, it's going to take up two of those blocks on its own. So then we might be able to fit in one or two smaller things that can be done like in one sprint or two sprint at a time. And we don't bring on anything else until those are completely done and over with. And to bring that back to pricing, we have a specific price that we charge for um, being one of those blocks. And um, so, which just, that's really just our way of knowing we've covered our cost. If we hit this target, we've covered our cost. We've had some, we've made our profit goal and we have plenty of time to actually get it out the door. So somewhere in between that number and what I think it's valuable for them is usually where we're hitting when I talk about doing a value price. And that's really just because I'm not confident is probably the best word in, in my abilities to actually value price. So uh, you, you said that uh, a client will tell you their, their goal or objective and then you'll tell them how many sprints. H how do you determine that? I mean, how do you decide how long this thing will take? So I still get estimates from my developers. Mm -hmm. And then we add on time for QA. And then I realize knowing about how much time they have available in the sprint, you know, per block, which is what we call them. That's something we just totally made up because we're not in a position where we can ever just work on one project to the exclusion of everything else until it's done. Um, you know, when you're working on a project for a year, you can't tell everyone else you have to wait until the year's up. We don't have right. a second team to give things to. So it, a lot of it is just um, instinct and knowing, like if a developer tells me the actual coding time is going to be 25 hours, then I can figure out okay, I think that's probably going to take him or take us two sprints or whatever to turn that around. And so we started doing it by what we think we can turn around in a sprint instead of the number of hours. 
if we miss it, we just work harder in that sprint to still get it within the sprint. And I feel like it kind of all washes, washes out eventually. Um, I become much more focused on getting it done, like getting all of the objectives done in the sprint than how much time we spent against any one task versus what we estimated for that task, which is what we try to, we used to try to do that is, okay, we estimated um, eight points for the story and we tracked time and it was five and a half hours, which is technically more than you should have spent on an eight point story. And we just don't really do that anymore. We really do it by what did we think we were going to get done in this sprint and did we? And if we didn't, why? Yeah. You started to answer my, my, my follow-up question, which was going to be uh, what happens if, if the estimate t turns out to be wrong. And, and I think you've already answered that. So um, Generally, we just start working harder in the middle of the sprint because when we realize we're off, we just... You know, we just up our game because it's easy to see when you're looking at it from the agile standpoint. We know what we have to finish within two weeks. You see when you're off track. You don't really see that. I mean, maybe the project manager with the waterfall chart and the Gantt chart, he sees it. But when you're just talking about eight different tasks and, you know, where they stand in a longer term project, you don't really see that correlation. So we see it. We fix it. A lot of times when we're off. It's more because we didn't get information from the client or we didn't finish it enough before the end of the sprint to be able to get the client to sign off. So in those cases, we'll usually just, um, we have something we call overflow and we just stick it in the overflow bucket. And then that client just, we just like try to bang it out as soon as the next, you know, as fast as we can in the next sprint. Um, but it does sort of, it affects the next sprint. So we really try not to do that. It eats up a block. Right. And how often does that happen that you that you underestimate something? Not as often. Early on, it happened every single time. And we've only been doing this, let's see, we're probably only about two and a half years into doing Agile. But the last few months, maybe two or three times. But usually they're very close. Like, for example, a couple of um, the last one we had that had to go into overflow it was finished. It could have been signed off on, but the client was off Thursday and Friday. So we could we just couldn't get the sign off. So we had to put the sign off into the following sprint. It's been a learning process for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. And of course, we always all have more to learn. Um, but it's encouraging to hear, uh, hear your success and uh, some of your challenges too. Um, Lynn, if, if, if anybody's interested in, in catching up with you, um, well, first off, maybe you want to tell us how to find your company. If anybody listening uh, has a family member who does manufacturing that <laughs> needs some automation help, maybe they can point them your direction. How do we get a hold of your company? Our website is XLSS, as in ExcelSoftwareServices.com. That's Best Buy. We don't really do social or anything like that. So they have that, there's a phone number on there. We actually answer phones. Because we, wow. work with, we work in <laughs> industries where people like to pick up the phone and call. It goes to our support desk. And so our support guy picks it up when he's there. When he's not there, then it just goes to voicemail and he returns the call. But um, So, yeah, that's the best way. Uh, Lynn, thanks again for coming on. I, I learned a bit. I Thank hope you. that uh, the listeners enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs>